you have a seat for this morning. And with the lights down, I want to just um, take you into the place that we've been this morning, a holy place with him. And um, you fill my soul is a, it's a song that is so deeply personal and profoundly true. And I know it is for many of us. It takes me back 43 years ago to when I um, had my first experience of being with people who were grieving the loss of a family member. And I was responsible to say things of comfort. And that song was part of a gathering. And it still is part of my soul. It's, it's really a, a prayer you and I just prayed. That's what my soul right? Uh, would you bow your heads with me? And Lord, we come to you as we've done in song, we do in word. Be still and know that I am God, you tell us in Psalm 46. Be still and know. And then you tell us about stuff that's troublesome at any level. Not only stuff that we hear about, but stuff we go through. And you're that God that says, be still. And the purpose for our stillness is for us to behold you. And in beholding you, to find that you are our refuge and our strength. Our constant complaining, come what may. And I know people in this place hearing these songs in my prayer at this moment that have been hit by hurricane-like storms. And they're still standing. They're still hoping. They're still trusting. They're still resting and being still. Because the day will come when we are home with you. And I thank you for a room full of dear saints that love you. Others that are just figuring out what to do as they begin this relationship with you. Doesn't mean dangers go away or troubles cease to visit us. It just simply means we we know a God that will get us through it. So we're still in this moment before you. And it's a great place to be. Help us to look at our dangers differently today as the Holy Spirit teaches us more. In the name of Jesus Christ, the one that we long to be with, we pray. All God's people said, amen, amen. I, um, I am uh, really wanting you to do something today. Even if you have plans at 5 o'clock, I'd like you to change them. So I'm going to be your plan changer right now, at least in, rec- in, least, at least in a recommendation. And that would be, uh, this room will be a gathering place again for hymn singers. And uh, we have a wonderful evening at 5 planned. It could go till midnight, but it'll only go an hour. So <laughs> come, 
come and be a part of it. I hope you are. I, we plan to be, and uh, I think it'll 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 be news and new information, new songs for some. But most of us, it will it will it will be that anchor that's held us in the storm, right? So come tonight, five o'clock, right here in this room. So um, danger is uh, the topic I want to talk about today. You can see my title: uh, surrounded by danger yet safe, which might sound like poppycock nonsense, pie-in-the-sky, dreamy stuff. Uh, but I think you're going to find, I hope you will, as I did in discovering these things, that it's not only possible, it's uh, preferable. And in fact, God's purpose is to teach his people you will go through storms and trials and danger, but I will show you how to be safe in all of that. So that's a pretty good promise. I hope I uh, don't disappoint. But think, of, think about the word danger for a minute because it's kind of one of those strange words. It, its meaning actually morphs over time. Uh, follow with me. Uh, at least for most people, it's been my experience, and I'm describing myself to some extent. But take children, okay? Go back to little people, and they, they seem to lack, most of them, a, a, a sort of intrinsic uh, sense of danger. They, uh, that's why they have parents, by the way. That's one of the big reasons, right? So a child just goes, there's my ball, and it's bouncing out into the middle of a busy boulevard. And a child doesn't think, like a dog or a cat or a, a, a squirrel, um, they, they learn over time, but a child hasn't learned that yet, and a child completely oblivious might give chase were it not for a mom or a dad that says, whoa, 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 that's not a good idea, and, uh, and they stop them. So parents are important for warning uh, little children about uh, the dangers of cars and pit bulls <laughs> and, and stuff like that, uh, poison, right? It's... It's we, we lock it up well and that kind of thing, but you even have to warn your children, and this is a tough one to teach, about dangerous people. Uh, you know, stranger danger. How do you do that without freaking your child out and making them think everybody but mommy and daddy are dangerous? And uh, that's, a, that's part of the risk. I, uh, <laughs> I, how many of you remember The Lion King? Remember... Uh, Mufasa, and he was the bad guy. But then there was, who was the king? Huh? Oh, yeah, no. Who, who did I? Mufasa was bad. Scar. Hold on. You remember the Lion King? Oh, good, you do. That's great. So you probably knew that Mufasa was the king, right? And uh, Scar was uh, like a distant relative that was a bad guy and trying to wreck her. And then comes young Simba, Simba the son of Mufasa, right? And Simba, as a lion king cub, remember his immortalized words? I laugh at the face of danger. 
And he was a child, and you would expect Simba to talk that way. But over time, he learned it wasn't a laughing matter at all. He had learned uh, as he grew up and gained wisdom. Then we come to teenagers, of course, which is a weird anomaly uh, in this whole human experience, and it was for all of us. They become, it seems, fearless thrill-seekers, teenagers. I'm still laughing. I got Lion King on my mind. But um, at times they, I'm going to say it, I, I watch teenagers, and more often than not, I want to parent them, even if they're not mine, even if I have no idea who they are. I want to go, you know, that's not smart. And, and then I would be speaking to an alien because they don't know smart, most of them. And I'm talking about myself. Please don't take offense if you're a teenager or no one. Um, but I was warned many times, that's not smart. That's not a good idea. That's dangerous. And, uh, and, and, and so they, they actually are so uh, sort of weirdly drawn to danger. They, they almost appear to have a, a death wish, Right? And, it, and if, you don't, if you don't feel that way or you've been away from observing things like this, uh, motorcycles are almost an irresistible attraction to teenagers. And they haven't learned to be smart, and, uh, and so they, they do risky kinds of things. Here's one for you. On your way home, go by the skate park in Tigard. Any questions? You know, I, I, and don't pull in there. I was going to suggest you pull in there and just watch them, but you'll get arrested. They'll think you're creeping on them or something weird. But the truth is, what's going on there, there's this little disclaimer on the side, uh, um, not responsible for injuries, enter at your own risk. And teenagers go, let me in. There's this magnet that draws them in and says, I can try it and I can beat that. Bungee jumping is another one. Have you seen the new one wheel? It's called one wheel, and it's electric. And the wheel's in the middle, and you got a foot over here on, and a foot over here. H how many have ever tried that? I didn't expect a hand, but y are you noticing what I've got in the air? I was warned uh, Krista Westfall, Krista and Michael's son, Micah, can get on that thing, choo, 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 and zip around everywhere, everything's fine. I thought, I could do that. About a month ago, by the way. Um, and, uh, and as I got over next to it, it was on, and I got ready to stand on it. Everybody, every adult in the room, including the children, said, that's, a, that's, a, that's not a good idea, that's not a good idea. He had just got off it, and I thought, he can do it, I can do it. And I literally put one foot here, and barely got the other one here, and then it started moving, and I went, whoosh, boom, right in the office. Like, like, I'm sure I should have broken an arm or more in the moment. Teenagers are kind of like that. They, they like that. Um, but adulthood comes along, and things change. Or, sh or should change, right? They should change. Uh, at least they do for some of us, and by no means all, as my story illustrates. But we start to play more carefully. We're just aware of that. They, we're drawn less to danger. And we, we're, we distance ourselves from it, actually. We go the other direction. And, and 
We employ metrics like, you know what? I didn't do it last month, but I'll do it next month. Um, that could actually, um, that thing right there, that could cost me. That could, that, could, that could hurt or even kill me if I land wrong. And so I've started to add to a list of things. Don't even invite me to do them. I don't do them. Okay? So I don't ice skate anymore. How many of you ice skate at this age? I didn't say when you were a teenager, remember? Okay, uh, I don't water ski anymore. And here's one. I was really good on rollerblades. Not now. I gave them away, and I had no problem giving them away. Uh, I had the guy sign a liability waiver, and uh, anyway, we're good. So that's also why I stay away from scary parts of town. I do. When I hear that crime is high in a certain location, I do, do not go there without thought. Is that a smart place for me to be? Maybe you act the same way. Okay? Um, because those places are actually known to be, say the word with me, dangerous. So a quick question before we open Acts chapter 22 I want to ask you a question that I hope you'll answer today in detail with somebody. What's on your list right now of things that are dangerous? And a follow-up to that, whatever's on that list, could be that one wheel or whatever it is. But what do you stay away from or do you stay away from those things that are on your list? So now for a strange item. Some of you will want to protest when I say it. Um, but I'm going to ask you uh, if on your list is the word Christianity. Your list of dangerous things might include ice skating and rollerblades and water skiing, etc. But does it include Christianity? Um, actually, the biblical message seems to be mixed when it comes to the dangers that you and I actually will face, not are not likely to face, but will face as Christians. Check out these words by Jesus. He warned. And by the way, when you look at these, that's Peter. We're looking at Matthew 10. When you look at the words in Matthew 10, do we have that slide? It's up there now. It is. Sorry. My bad. Remember the Lion King? Anyway, so uh, it's going to stay with me forever. Matthew 10, you need to know the context. It's the first time Jesus gathered his disciples and said, hey, fellas, we're heading out. Actually, you're heading out. And this is what he actually told them as he was waving goodbye. I'll see you soon. Okay? Matthew chapter 10. You will be... Casually disliked, hated. When somebody hates somebody, they've got a heart that wants to hurt them. That's assumed in the word hatred. You will be hated by everybody, not a few, because of me. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. He continues, when you are persecuted in one place, hold on. If you're about to leave town and Jesus says, hey, Steve, 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 don't. 
Don't forget what I'm saying. You will be persecuted. I just want to change that so badly for you. It might, your walk with God might involve persecution. It's not what the Bible is. That's not what Jesus said. It will happen. Maybe it's happened to you already. You hear where this is going. You will be persecuted in one place, so go home and never go out again. You see, I, this is what I do with the Bible. I start to think of other ways you could write the Bible, and it would change the whole meaning. Jesus said, no, move on to a different place. Truly, I tell you, you will not finish going through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. And one of the guys in that crowd that day was Peter. And he did that, and he described later, much later in his life, in his words that were up there, um, what it was like as a follower of Jesus that he actually describes danger as fairly, may I use the words, normal. These words, 1 Peter 4. Dear friends, don't be surprised. He's telling younger Christians. At the fiery ordeal that has come upon you to test you. As though some strange thing were happening to you. Can I just stop? We could go on all day, and I, I hope we do. It's just a really cool, important thing. How many of us get hit by a dangerous something as a Jesus follower and wonder, why me? Do you ever think that way? I do. I don't always, but sometimes I think, wow, that was, that was like a fast pitch for my head. Nobody else's. It was like beaning the batter. And he's saying, no, don't, don't, don't be surprised as though some weird thing were happening to you. Fiery ordeal. But as, um, as though some strange thing were happening to you, rejoice instead. Inasmuch as you are participant in the sufferings of Christ. So that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. We're hearing it there from Jesus. Peter was one of those that went out. And we hear it many years later when Peter pins these words in the first of his two letters. But there's another place. The writer of Psalm 91 verses 9 through 12, makes it sound like we will be actually kept safe despite the dangers we face. If you say the Lord is my refuge and you make the Most High your dwelling, that means you're tight. Let's just say we're tight with Jesus, with God. No harm will overtake you. It might come, but it won't overcome with me? That hurricane hit me, but I'm still standing. That's okay. You make the most high your dwelling. No harm will overtake you and no disaster will come near your tent. For he will command his angels, almost a direct quote of Psalm 34 as well, concerning you to guard you in all of your ways. And I love this image because hurricanes hit hard and sometimes we're knocked down. He says they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. 
and it's into this present danger of those standout passages that are by no means lonely that we probe as we journey with the Apostle Paul, who was, may I say it at the outset, surrounded by danger, yet safe. Uh, some background, Matthew, or, uh, Acts 22 is where my Bible's open to. And last week we left off um, with Paul sharing his testimony. It was, is, it was inspiring to many of us. And I hope you're doing something about your testimony. You're writing down a paragraph of who you were before Jesus, how you met Jesus, and how he's been working or changing your life since coming to live inside you. That's all the stuff of meeting Jesus and having a testimony. So Paul's testimony was that his sins were forgiven and he was sent by this forgiver, Jesus, on a mission. Actually, several. There were three mission trips that are recorded and contained in many of the details in Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. Um, and it's these missions trips that he's, he's sent on so that he can tell people his story. I was a bad guy. In a religious kind of weird way, I had it all together. But I was a wreck. And I, and I, and I was lost. I was terribly confused. I did not have it clear or straight. And I met Jesus, and he forgave me. And I'm here to tell you he can, he can forgive you as well. And that's not just words on a page here. That's words for us now. Um, and all of that comes through Jesus. So when he comes to telling his salvation story, in a single sentence, verse 21, he utters one word. It's actually ten words, but he utters one word in particular that had the effect of rolling a grenade into the gathering. It detonated a bomb that brought a head-on collision. I'll just say it, with great danger. With one word, the word is Gentiles, the mostly Jewish audience that was listening to him talk and quietly doing so exploded. They were instantly crazed. You can't see my eyes if you could. It'd be like that, um, uh, um, that emotem on an iPhone. Like they were just shocked at what they heard. Gentiles, the full statement, the Lord said to me, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And things blew up. Let's read on. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted him out, basically. Rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. Crucify him. Crucify him. Remember those words? As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, that is a flashback, almost word for word and development by development to Saul, when he stood there watching them stone Stephen 
all the way back in chapter 7. It's terrible. The commander ordered in this erupted scene that Paul be taken into the barracks and he directed that he be flogged so that he could be interrogated in order to find out why the people went nuts. Why they were shouting at him like this. So as they stretch him out to flog him, I'll spare you the details, but it's a whipping beyond belief. As they stretched him out to do so, Peter said, or Paul said to the centurion standing there, and there's a tone of calm when you read how verse 25 ends. Say, um, fellas, is it legal for you to do what you're about to do? To flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? That's the end of the quote, by the way. When the centurion heard this, he's the guy about to do it. He's strapping him in. He went straight to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do? He asked. This man, he just told me he's a Roman citizen. Commander went to Paul and asked, tell me, is it true? Are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, Paul answered. Then the commander said, well, you know, I had to pay a bunch of money for my citizenship. Paul's answer, but I was born a citizen. Shrug. Just took it up. He's purebred. Those who were about to interrogate him withdrew immediately. Can I paraphrase that for you? They ran for their lives because they thought their names would be listed in those that get to pay for this. Oh my goodness, no due process, no proper adjudication of this charge against nothing. We're going to beat the snot out of him and get him to confess to something ridiculous. Those who are about to interrogate leave, leave quickly, immediately. And the commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen in chains. Look how the chapter ends. So the commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews. So the next day he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the members of this religious group, the Sanhedrin, to assemble. And then they brought Paul and had him stand before them. So an outcry had erupted. It was a method akin to torture. To save the words till now. That's exactly the kind of danger the apostle was about to face. By the way, if you took the time to read um, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, it's, it's so harsh to read. It's almost nauseating. But it is first person. It's a confession. It's a uh, testimony, if you will, by Paul of all the stuff he went through. The dangerous whipping and um, the list is full. And it happens. So this is one of those that made that list. Uh, this torture was about to be used to extract from him a confession of a crime that he was suspected of committing. Keep in mind, the commander is a Roman. 
the, the, the temple leadership, the Jewish leadership was the Sanhedrin. Very different. It would be like the, us having a fit in here and it went to fists. Terrible image. But they called the police. And we're having a fit over whether we should read the King James Version or New International. Wow. Do people fight about that? I think we do. Hopefully not. Hopefully not. But if we did and it went crazy, then somebody pressed 911 and the police came and they'd go, I'm not sure what you guys are all worked up about. It's the Bible. But you know what? I, I've got to get to the heart of this because I don't know why, but this side's ready to kill this side. You get what I mean? That's what's going on here. And so the Romans are just like, huh? You guys have weird things going on. And indeed, they were, they were, they were revved up. The scourging's about to begin. When <laughs> I love verse 25 where Paul says, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen? I mean, in that moment, you can barely, if you listen, you can hear the oxygen sucked from the room. Oh, my goodness. And, and, and as a result of an exchange between Paul and the commander, Paul's citizenship is right there in the, in the mud. And the ones that ran, ran. But the ones that couldn't were, were stuck. They were frozen. What is he about to do? So with that, this little, call it the fly in the ointment, the torture of Paul was stayed. Danger averted, right? Not so fast. After a restless night's sleep, the commander convened a meeting of this religious group called the Sanhedrin. Verse 30 is what's happening here. And what we have in the proceeding the next morning, where Paul faced the Jewish high council, made up of two prominent groups of theologians, if you will. The Pharisees were one, the Sadducees were the other. You can call it political groups, I don't choose to do that. Because much greater passion comes to people who are religiously revved up than we'll ever see in Washington, D.C. So go bigger than that, because this is really not about that. This is about two very different groups of theologians, thinkers about God in the same body known as the Sanhedrin. And that's what's going on here. And after this night's sleep, um, Paul is facing this council, and it's a picture of being surrounded by danger at sea. Chapter 22. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this very day. At that, at that moment, at that precise moment, the high priest Ananias ordered those near Paul to strike him in the mouth. I hope you'll read verse 1 ten times and ask yourself the question, what did I do if that was me? What did I just say that caused, a, a, actually mo, a most read the Greek here to be not a slap, a punch in the face. It was a violent moment in church. 
not true. You get what I'm saying? It's like, you're kidding me. And, it's, and it was ordered by the high priest. Verse 3, then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. And that's the tone he said it in. You see the exclamation point there? He's not being nice either. He's going, God's going to get you too, dude, we would say. But you whitewashed wall, you sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourselves violate the law by commanding that I be struck. What a moment. Those who were also standing near, Paul said, uh, uh, bro, listen, how dare you insult God's high priest? Look at his response. Paul replied, brothers, I didn't realize that he was the high priest, for it is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people, a quote of Exodus 22. Uh, of, uh, yeah, Exodus 22. Then Paul, knowing that some of them, remember I told you about the people that made up this council? Knowing that some of them were Sadducees and others Pharisees, he called in the Sanhedrin, called out, My brothers, I am a Pharisee. I'm descended from a Pharisee. That means I've, I'm supersized Pharisee. And I stand on trial today because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. Oops. Uh, can you guys pretend on this side of the room that you're Sadducees? Let me read that statement again. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. Yeah, yeah, good. Some of you know. They don't buy the resurrection at all. And a few other things I'll mention. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. And in parentheses, we're given a little information here. The Sadducees say there is no resurrection, and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the, but the Pharisees, they believe all that. There was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and pointed finger. We're not going to play all this out, okay? We're not going to act it out. You don't have to get up. Um, they got up, and they, and they argued vigorously. We find, wrong with, we find nothing wrong with this man, said the Pharisees. Wow, they're kind of circling around him. Uh, nothing wrong with him. What if a spirit or an angel had spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be, what? Killed, torn to pieces by them. That he ordered the troops to go down, take him away from them by force, and bring him into the barracks. Let's stop right there for a moment. Let's just admit a couple of things. This is a very inauspicious start <laughs> to a proceeding, right? I mean, you know, verse 1 doesn't play out very well. Um, and there's, there's weird twists that come along with it. We're, we don't have time to go into all of it. But he gets struck for that. For claiming to be um, a person that's got a clean conscience. Really? Um, and he was struck for a reason, not only to establish you're not the big deal, Paul. The priest is. Um, there's speculation out there for a lot of different reasons why he was struck. But he was, he was struck 
to stop him from talking. And, um, and this enraged Paul, verse 3. Uh, not for being, I don't think, I happened to land on the side, not because he was slapped or punched, whatever it was, um, but because of the gross hypocrisy that he calls out. He says, you're here to carry out a proceeding based on the law. And you violate the law yourself. And you punch an innocent man. Or order him to. And who, who are you, Mr. High Priest? Um, there's actually, uh, there's, there's some thought out there. And I, I tend to agree with the interpretation of this moment. That, um, that Paul's response was a bit sarcastic. It was a way of saying, you know, um, the guy asked him, do you know who you're talking to? What is it, verse 3? Um, and uh, no, verse 4, those standing near him, Paul said, how dare you insult God's high priest? And Paul's response was a tone of sarcasm. Uh, I didn't realize that he was a high priest. I used to read that as if I had no idea. And I think what he was saying is, you know, no, no, no. Um, you know what? I didn't recognize you as the high priest because you're not behaving like the high priest. Because the high priest is supposed to live by a code. It's called the law. And above the rest of us, you're supposed to have it down. And look at you. You take cheap shots like Now, that's my speculation. There's difference of opinion there. I think it's worth noting because it captures some of the tone here. Then he calls him, of course, a whitewashed wall. Direct quote of Jesus, um, his words of woe. Do you remember these words? I think they're coming up right now in Matthew chapter 23. Woe to you, teachers. This came from Jesus. And it was directed at whom? Teachers of the law, the Pharisees, you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you're hypocrites. You're like a whitewashed tomb, which looks beautiful on the outside. You got it, you got the big robe, you got it all going for you, and people are impressed with the look. But inside you are full of bones of dead people and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear as righteous. Paul, I think, had this in his mind by calling them the same name. You you appear righteous, but on the inside you're full of hypocrisy. So, a lot of different beliefs about um, important things. Quickly, I'll mention them. The Pharisees believed in the uh, 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 oral law. The Sadducees only accepted written law and minutiae things. Big difference, but it gets even more interesting. Pharisees believed in fate and predestination. Sadducees believed in free will. Sounds like arguments that still go on to some extent, doesn't it? Here's one more. Pharisees believed in angels and spirits. This is a doctrine in the Bible. Sadducees don't believe in any of that. But biggest of all, the Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead. And the Sadducees did not. So now you know what lit up the place. Um, 
by the way, it marked the end of the trial. Um, it was over because the place exploded. And uh, it was quite a ruckus. Removing him from the scene, Paul, to save him from certain death, a mauling that would have been ugly and horrible. Um, he's taken, really, to the barracks, really as uh, protective custody, we would say. That's what was going on in verses 9 and 10. And while there, overnight, look at verse 11. The Lord stood near Paul and said, my Bible has it in red, take courage. Take courage, Paul, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Just to give you a little foreshadow that's where we're heading in the last few chapters of Paul's life his journey to Rome but he starts with words that can I just look at verse 11 and it's the ultimate stand by me it was truly a stand by me moment those guys wanted me dead this turned out really bad and Jesus came to his side talk about being surrounded by danger which is what we just read, 9 and 10. Yet, verse 11 says, safe. Uh, lots of other scenes in the Bible like that. I love 2 Kings 6. I hope you will read it today. It's a scene involving Elisha being hunted by, uh, by the king of Aram. And he wants him dead. And he comes down to, he fought um, where the prophet was in Dothan, and um, he was close. They were in Samaria. And, and um, so anyway, he comes the one morning, and the king has a bunch of warriors positioned all around. I sometimes visualize a, a little cabin or something, a little house where they're staying. Elijah, Elisha, the prophet, and his assistant. The assistant went out that morning and beheld with his own eyes something that shocked him, that made his knees knock in fear. There is trouble everywhere. Danger, 360, everywhere. And he comes back in and says, oh, my master, speaking to Elisha, the prophet, we're surrounded, we've had it. The, the, the enemy and his soldiers are everywhere. And the prophet gets up and goes outside to see with his own eyes answer is beautifully different. He said, oh wow, look at that. We are surrounded. If, if, if I can animate that scene, if you're the assistant and going, you, you okay? What are you seeing? Of course, the answer will strike you when you read 2 Kings 6. Okay? Don't do that yet. I'm not going to tell you. That's not fair, Pastor. It's my reading. Okay, so um, here's the deal. Uh, this moment, verse 11, for me in this story, would have been a perfect time for the clouds to clear, would have been a great moment for the threat to disappear. Jesus is here. Problems vanish, right? I think that way sometimes, and I bring that up because some of you do too. 
And I belong to Jesus. Uh, that means you can, you can sleep at night, Paul, uh, peacefully. And tomorrow, the danger, you'll get up and you'll look around. And you're not surrounded by anything. It's all done, gone, behind you. Let's move on. Wishful thinking in this story. Are you with me? We're not quite done. We're almost. Staying with me? Let's go. Okay, so here's the deal. Turns out the danger overnight had actually increased. Let's call it DEFCON 1. This is in uh, hyperspeed. Things had developed into a clear and present danger. Verse 12, the next morning some Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed Paul. By the way, they knew where he was. More than 40 of them were involved in this plot. And they went to the chief priests and elders and they said, we've taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petition the commander to bring Paul before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about the case. And we are ready as he passes by on the way to get him and kill him. But when the son of Paul's sister, who knew? His nephew. His nephew heard of this plot. He went into the barracks and told Paul. Somehow he eavesdropped. We're not sure how he got the info. But he goes in because he's, remember, he's not arrested. He's under protective custody. He freely goes in to see his uncle Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man, my nephew, to the commander. He has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. The centurion said, Paul, the prisoner, sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. Commander said, come, come over here, young man. Led him by the hand, drew him aside from others. What is it you want to tell me? He says, some Jews have agreed to ask you to bring, I don't think he said Uncle Paul, they just, he stuck with Paul. Paul, before the Sanhedrin tomorrow, on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't do it. Don't give in to them because more than 40 of them are waiting to ambush him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they've killed him. They are ready now, waiting for your consent to their request to move the prisoner. The commander dismissed the young man with this warning, with caution. Shh! Don't tell anyone that you've reported this to me. Folks, we're reading about an assassination plan, a plot. And it's, and it's put together by some really serious people. There's a lot written about this. But they're, they're basically the people that would vow, make it, take a vow of their own harm. I'm not going to eat or drink a thing unless I do this thing. That's how dedicated these 40 are to this outcome. Danger on steroids. You know what it reminds me of this scene? I, I read this and I automatically went back to chapter 12. It wasn't Paul there, it was Peter. He was arrested and he was facing death the next day. 
called danger, right? Do you remember that night? It's the last night of his earthly life. An angel springs him from prison and gets him out of there. He was kept safe. He was delivered. And and it made me wonder, on this night for Paul, I'm, I'm speculating, but I think it's a good guess that he knew what happened in chapter 12. It wasn't written as a chapter then. He knew the oral truth. He knew the story. Hey, Peter got out of this. God came through. The God of angel army we just sang about. He did it. He pulled it off. It's, it's my guess that he knew that story. And it makes me wonder, did, did that help him stay calm uh, in custody? Did it help him to um, sort of hearing of that outlook or, or that outcome for Peter helped him in his outlook for what's ahead in this incarceration of his life? And I, I want to ask you something at the end here. Do you, let's bring it to you and me. Do the deliverance stories like chapter 22 or chapter 12, and there are many others that we've read, do, do those stories give you sort of um, uh, a confidence level? Uh, do you face danger? Because I think they're supposed to. I think as I read them, it's, it's possible to read them like a seminary grad that's read them more time than is healthy. But I think they're meant to say, wait, it it happened with Peter that way. We just read it happened to Paul that way. Let me ask you, ever been really in your own, you get to decide this, surrounded by danger and felt in that surrounding uncommonly hair wasn't standing on end. You were uncomfortable. You were at peace. Do you remember these names? You know their stories. They're Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The fire is hot. Seven times hotter than manna. I love their words. You want to hear them? The king's about to throw them in, have have them thrown in. And, um, and they have words that say, you know something, um, we, we're, we're, not, we're not worried. To quote them directly, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to keep us safe, deliver us from it. And he will deliver us, King Nebuchadnezzar, from your hand. That's not the whole statement. But even if he does not. Some of the best words in the Bible. Daniel 3, 17 and 18. Verse 18. Even if he does not, we want you to know, king, that we will not serve your gods and we will not worship an image of gold that you have set up because we belong to the one true God capable of keeping us safe in any and all danger. Amen? Uh, folks, let me have you close your Bibles now. We're going we're gonna to read how it all turned out. 
There's a purpose in letting me hold on to this. Because I want, I want us to take a good long look this week at life. Um, I'm not going to say which news outlet does this. I think they all do. But I think they are a giant syringe called fear. And they will squirt it in any vein they can find. Does it mean I'm a Pollyanna and I hide my head in the sand? If somebody can tell me in a Bible verse that that's not a good approach, tell me. But I'll take that label any day of the week. Don't care about the news and don't plan to care about the news. And I sleep better at night. Um, Paul knew he was about to face serious danger. And he had made up his mind that no matter how, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, no matter how it turns out, I was going to be safe in the sovereign plan of God. Folks, there's nothing outside of his control. Am I correct? Are you, are you persuaded by that? You should be. That's biblical. Nothing outside of his control. A friend of mine used to say, everything that happens to us is father-filtered. I like that. It makes me feel safe, which I think is the point of this message today. Um, one other takeaway. Paul knew he was going to face danger all alone. He was told that back in chapter 21. Yet he was calm and composed when trouble found him. His secret? He realized he wasn't all alone. That's why verse 11 is so cool. Jesus came. When it says stood by him, what's that mean except, come here, buddy. Come here. Let me, I don't know what it would look like if he held him, if they sat next to each other in the cell. I don't know. You have that place too. He realized that he wasn't alone. There was Joshua, the great successor under Moses, who landed in the land and went, oh my goodness. And you know what, what he learned right away? Multiple times in the first chapter. Joshua 1, verse 9. Have I not commanded you? He heard these words. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged, for I, the Lord your God, am with you wherever you go, and may I add, and whatever danger you face. Amen. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? Even in the midst of danger, you and I are safe in the, in the secure hands and arms of a sovereign God who says, I'm here with you. John Newton wrote a song that we love to sing, Amazing Grace. In it, the, the fourth verse says, Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come, Lord. T'was grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. I'm struck by the fact that that describes us today. Through many dangers, toils, and snares. 
was 500 years ago that a German teacher and monk named Martin Luther took a stand that was not popular. He called out corruption in the church, and it ignited a firestorm against him. And in the midst of that danger, he wrote the words of a beautiful song that has given many of us facing danger strength and courage. A mighty fortress is a song that is a must-sing today. And as we sing it, I want to invite you to give God your danger and ask the Holy Spirit to do whatever needs to happen in whatever language you can hear it to reassure you that you too are safe. Would you stand as we sing together?